Turn to your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I'm going to read this, and then I'm, I'm going to let you go, because you always did a great job. Thank you so much. Just kind of move me in softly. I'm kind of an obnoxious person sometimes. Let's read. He is the image of the invisible God. Did I tell you what verse? Okay, because I was just reading like y'all know where I'm going. Okay. He is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And say it with me. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross and you. That's, this is where we got to pay attention. And you and Scott Brandon, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, one of the greatest doxologies of who Jesus is, is written right there. I would encourage you to memorize it. I memorized this a long time ago, but I was scared to do it because, you know, sometimes you just get stage fright, and then I'll be like, Jesus gave his son to me, the wrong one altogether. And so uh, we want to get into who Jesus is this morning. We've been talking about one body, but can I tell you, who cares if you got a body if you ain't got a, a head, Right? And nobody wants headless people walking around. And the church doesn't need to walk around headless, although at times in history, we see that has been true. And so today, when we talk about Jesus Christ as the head of the church, I want you to know that it's not some subject that we just talk about because it's in the Word of God. In fact, back in 1416, John, Huss, John Husserson uh, they called him the goose. His name meant the goose. And in uh, 1415, he was, he was, he was cooked, <laughs> funny enough. He was cooked at the stake by the Church of Rome because of this one simple statement that he made. He said, Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. And the Pope was not happy with that. The Pope said, no, I have the authority. I I am the head of the church. We just read right here how if you are the head of the church, if any man would make that claim, those are some tall orders right there. The one thing that bothers me is that whoever might claim to be the head of the church, it says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so when we're talking about the head of the church, we're only talking about one who can fit the bill, and that is Jesus Christ. And as I begin to write out my outline, I naively begin to just 
right? Okay, what does that mean? What does the head of the church mean? And as I was writing down, I realized as I started fleshing my sermon out, I, I got about halfway through my point one, I realized, okay, this, this could be a series. So I didn't do all of that work. I, I'll have to come back to it, but I want us to jump into what his headship is like. And we can look at so many different aspects, but I want to focus this morning on the idea that the head represents the body. We see that in our life. That's not nothing new. Uh, we say things like head of state, the department head, headwaters, headline, head of the family, and all of those things are representatives of something that's bigger than that, a family or a company. And so today, I want to look at how his representation impacts us. There are many different, even, even in the idea that he is uh, he's not just our representation, he's many other things as the head of the church, but even in looking through the, the lens of his headship in terms of representation, there are so many different facets, and so I just want to focus on two this morning, and the first one is the Adamic representation, I did not cuss, and the second one is the priestly representation. What does that mean? When, when we talk about representation, Jesus is our representation. What are we saying when we say that? And so let's pray and dive in. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you gave your only begotten son and that he died and that he rose again. He wasn't just a martyr, God, but he rose again with the power of the Holy Spirit, the king of the universe, and you set him as head over the church. Well, I thank you so much for that, but I pray today, Lord, in this small facet of understanding, I pray, God, would you show us exactly what that means? Sometimes, Lord, I read your word, and it just seems like language from long ago, but I pray today, oh God, I pray today, don't let your word be callous on our heart. Don't let your word be numb. Don't let the, the theology of the word, Lord, to seem distant or, or, or not connected. But I pray today that you bring your word near as you brought your presence near. God, and allow, God, the understanding of your word, Lord, to open our eyes, not just to strengthen us on uh, to live, but show us, Lord, today how to live, that we might represent the glorious head of the church that you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. When I talk about a representation, the best way for me to really uh, say this is redefining what the word representation means. And representation, if you go back to the Latin, simply means to represent, re, to show again or to bring back. Present is to show or to put before. And so when we say that Jesus is the head of the church, is the representation of the body, what we're saying simply is this. That he is again putting before God, or rather, he is representing you to be accepted. When Jesus is our representative, he is representing you to be accepted. Now you say, now when was I presented the first time? Well, the first time you were presented was an Adam. That's your granddaddy from a long time ago. And he didn't do so well. And so here we are looking at where Christ represents us to the Father. If you look at Colossians 1, 21 through 22, he, he begins to say this and begins to allude to some of this. He says, and you 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let me ask you a question. When you read that, do you think to yourself, I'm holy and I'm blameless and I'm above reproach? That's a tall order for Scott Brandon. I just can't fall into that and say, yes, Lord, I am those things. In fact, I cannot. I feel a disconnect from the word of God because I think there's no way I could ever be holy and blameless and above reproach. That I couldn't even, it's not that I didn't even sin above reproaches. I can't even be accused of sinning. I'm not even a place that you could tag that to me. And I've never been a place in my life where I've been totally scot-free. That's a pun intended there. Of not being able to be accused of sin. So here what we see is Jesus is reconciling us to the Father in his body of flesh. And it's significant to our understanding of who the church is, his body is, and the expectation he has for us as his body. And so this morning, let me talk about the Adamic representation. We need to understand that we are his body and that he is the head and that is found in the theology of what they call the last Adam. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, let me just make this statement, and then we'll go ahead and talk about it more. In Christ, the last Adam, we've been made righteous, therefore we act righteously. We've been made righteous, and therefore we act righteously. Sometimes we think we're trying to act righteous before we come to Jesus. That'll never work. But we've been made righteous, and therefore we can act righteously. Paul talks about this idea, the last Adam in verse 45 and 49. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. It says this, the scripture tells us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. And just as we are now the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. And I fear that to be very soon. When I say fear, I fear for those who have not yet made themselves ready. Because when he comes back, there are no excuses. I hope you're not holding on to excuses today. Paul simply states here this. He just, I'm just going to teach this morning. You guys good? Yeah. All right. Paul simply stating this, is that there's an Adam, and he, was, he had a natural body. There was a last Adam that was Jesus Christ. He had a natural body, but he has a heavenly body right now. And one day... We're going to be like him. As I read through the scripture, I had two questions. I thought to myself, why is Jesus referred to the last Adam? Why is that important? And secondly, is what does Jesus being the last Adam, what, what does it do? What does it mean to the fact that we are one body? How does, it, how does it implicate us? How does that change the idea of us being one body? Those are great questions. Let's talk about that. We find answers in Romans chapter 5. Romans, Romans 5 is a great chapter, especially if you don't like to suffer. It says, it says suffering is great. Enjoy it. Buy a vacation, buy a VRB home there and, and deal with it. Uh, but on down verse, to verse 12, he begins to talk about 
this last Adam and the first Adam. He says in verse 12, we find uh, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sins brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sin. I want you to understand that when Adam was created, this was the moment that you and I are indicted, were brought into creation. And as Adam sinned, from Adam, we were in his loins at the time, from Adam, what we have is a sin nature that has come into Adam, and everything that Adam produces, not just a human being, right? You know you belong to Adam because you got two feet, you got two eyes, they may not work, but you got two eyes, right? You, you, you talk, you look like the human race. And so what we see is, is we can identify from the source that we come from. Uh, Genesis says that everything reproduces after its own kind. So we know we come after Adam. The problem is, is that we don't only just identify him and the way he looks, but we also are identified him by the way he sins. You and I were born sinners because, not just like, but because of Adam's disobedience. And it's important for us to understand that as I walk through life, I'm surprised many times by people not knowing that they are living in unrighteousness. They're living in hostility with the Lord because they feel like they're doing wrong things. And, and it, it blows my mind. I, I want to just grab them and say, listen, <laughs> you're not... You're not at enmity with the Lord because you're doing wrong things. You're just at enmity with God because you are wrong. It's not what you do, it's who you are. It's who you are. You were born this way. You were born into sin. I, I need to make this clear. You were born a sinner. You did not become one. You, you, you didn't get to choose, I'm going I'm to be righteous. No, 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 I'm going to choose to be a sinner. No, that was not your choice. When you were born, you were born a sinner. You're not a sinner because you have thought sinful acts or done sinful things. You may have done those things, but that does not classify you as a sinner. Let me say it this way. You are an unrighteous person, not because you've done unrighteous acts, because your nature is unrighteous. Jesus tells us this in the metaphor of the tree. Matthew 12, 33-35, he says, A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If its tree is bad, the fruit will be bad. And skip down to verse 35. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. You have to understand is that your acts of unrighteousness come from an unrighteous person. And your acts of righteousness come from a righteous person. Now, is it possible to mimic righteousness? Well, yes, to some degree. You can mimic that, but it does not mean to be true. And we don't want to sidetrack into that conversation today because that will be a long one. So lastly, what I want you to understand is that no matter how hard you try, you need to know this. I just want to make sure you're clear. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you try to be perfect or, 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 or right, you'll never be right. You'll never be right. You'll never be accepted by God because of your works. Coming to church doesn't check your righteous box. 
I appreciate you giving in the offering, but that doesn't check your righteous box. When you pray and ask God for help, it doesn't check your righteous box. If you sacrifice, if you love others more than you love yourself, if you treat others the way you want to be treated, those are all great principles that even an atheist can follow, but it does not check the righteous box. There's only one way to be righteous. There's only one way to be righteous. And I have had countless friends and conversations with people saying, I'm going to come to church, which means they're going to get saved. They just use the same phraseology. But they're going to say, I'm going to come to church. As soon as I figure out how to do this righteous living, and I would tell them, listen, that salvation is a journey that we all start unrighteous in the Lord and his grace and his mercy and his love and the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us faith to receive and respond to what he has done. We finally arrive at salvation and then we start this journey of sanctification. Now i got to clean you up so you don't act like you've not been saved. Because sometimes if you've been around some people, I've told you some stories about some people in my life where they went to pray and the Lord was still working on their language, but their heart was in the right place. I've just never heard those words mixed up in a prayer before. But the Lord was working on the journey, the journey of sanctification. You and I are on that journey as well. But we only are able to do right things because he has made us righteous. And I think it goes without saying, let me just say this as well, you, you can't just stop doing unrighteous things and be made righteous. I had a friend who was a great friend. He was the most uh, good person I know. His name was Dow. I hope he's not watching the video. And... Um, he was such a good, I mean, he was just so pure in his heart. I was not that guy. That's why we were good friends, right? I was the jerk. He was not. And, and he had such a good heart, had a great family, really was just thoughtful of other people. And I don't know where he's at in life. I've not seen him in a long time, but I've often thought about him because I thought, you know, Lord, he doesn't know that he's evil. He doesn't know that he's unrighteous. And that he lives under the cover that I do good things. And I don't do wrong things. When I look at people in the church, this is him thinking, when I look at people in the church, I don't do the things that they do that are wrong. I don't do those things. And so he, he has no understanding or no, no reason as to why he should need Jesus because those people need Jesus because they're broke and destitute and messed up. But he is really just a good guy. And he really is a good guy. But he's still just a good, unrighteous sinner. It makes no difference. And so Paul is trying to continue this idea that the reason why you are born unrighteous, the reason why you were born a sinner, is not because you've done things, but because you came from Adam, who had the sin nature in his loins, and he passed it to you. In verse 17, he continues in saying, For the sin of this one man, Adam, Cause death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death of this one man, Jesus Christ. Now pay attention to verse 18. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because of one person disobey God, 
many become sinners. But because one person uh, um, disobeyed God, became sinners, and one person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. I want you to understand here is that when you and I put our faith in Christ, we became not a tree that bore better fruit. We became a good tree. We don't do righteous things and still are unrighteous people. No, the Lord changed our DNA. You have been regenerated. In fact, the term regenerated means to be regened. Re do you know how hard it is to, to be regened in your own life? But Jesus Christ regened your blood with his blood, and the life that used to flow from him is now in you. And where you had no life in the past, now you have abundant life. That's the life I'm talking about this morning. And so you say, Pastor Scott, that's all great. But what does that mean in terms of the body of Christ? How do we put the two together? Well, here's what I want you to see. It has huge implications on the body of Christ. You and I are one body. One body of who? We are the one body of the last Adam, Jesus. If the sin-natured body of Adam caused us to act unrighteously, how much more should we, the body of the last Adam, who has been free from sin, cause us to act righteously? You and I are the body of Christ, and since we have come from him, like we've come from Adam, then our natural tendency and propensity is to act righteous. And if we're not acting righteous, we have to ask ourselves, are we really the body of Christ? Because I don't know about you, but I know I belong to Adam because I've seen the sin of my life. I've seen unrighteousness in my life. I've never questioned if I did or did not come from Adam. But sometimes I've asked myself, Scott, did you really come from Christ? Are you really of Christ? But well, thank God I'm not just of Christ. It says God the Father put me in Christ. He put me in Christ. And I'm so thankful for that. That my righteousness is not on my own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand the gravity of that statement? I don't, until you see how awesome Jesus is, the righteousness of God is a small thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a meaningless thing. But we're talking about the righteousness of God that looks upon your life and decides whether or not you live up to the standard. If you've ever broken the Ten Commandments, you have fallen far below the, the, the righteousness of God. In fact, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisee, you're going to hell. And so we have to really understand how powerful this is. So what does this mean? As a church, you need to understand this, that we can't decide as a church, let's shout for the attributes of a church we want to be like. Should we be a loving church? Should we be a welcoming church? Should we be a forgiving church? Should we be an encouraging church? Should we be a prophetic church? Should we be a spirit-filled church? You can't shout for that. You can't decide what attributes to apply to your body. If you are the body of Christ, you'll produce those things automatically. So if you and I are the body of Christ, 
then we will be all those things that emanate from the source of us, which is the head, Jesus Christ. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? Let me just simplify and break it down. There's no way the world cares about who we're trying to be. The church can't grab identities and say, we want to be this or that or this flavor. Listen, there's only one flavor. (laughs) There's only one body. And if we claim headship to Jesus, then whoever he is, is who we are required to be and who we should be and who we've been strengthened to be and who we 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 will be. We can't just continue on. In fact, if we fail to do those things, we are not a part of the church. We are just a church. And I don't know about you, but I don't care to be a church. Jesus is the head of the church, and we are we are his body. We not only have the ability to act righteously, we must act righteously. We must love, we must forgive, we must care for, we must encourage, we must count others more significant than ourselves. We must not look to be served, but to serve as he did in his natural body. Can I get an amen this morning? Amen. That's who the body of Christ should be. That's who we're going to be. So when someone comes to that door back there and they don't look like the body of Christ, Remind yourself, who am I when I talk to them? Who am I when I shake their hand? Who am I when I look at them? Who am I when I ask questions? What is the intent of my questioning? Who am I? You are the body of Christ. And you are compelled. And your actions have been paid for by the blood of Christ. Now, let's go on second, to the second aspect of his headship, and that is simply this, is that he represents us um, in a different way, and that is in a priestly robe. Colossians 1, 21, 22 says this, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is, that is uh, terminology from the Levit- Levitical priesthood. When the priesthood would, would put uh, sacrifices before the Lord, and, uh, and sometimes those sacrifices weren't always accepted. In the book of Malachi, the Lord says, I don't want your sacrifices. They are not blameless. They're not acceptable. And so, so uh, Paul is teaching us here that we have someone who was putting us before the Lord to be presented and received. That's why it's important when Paul tells us in Romans 12:1 that I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that you what? By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Here he is. We need Jesus to present us holy and acceptable because that is our spiritual worship. And so this is Jesus again representing us to the Father in him. And that is through the priestly representation. So let me say this. As our high priest, Jesus fully understands our weakness and temptations, granting us bold, constant access to grace and mercy. One of the aspects of Jesus' representation of us is that he is our high priest. I think sometimes we forget about this. We, we, this is a great scripture that we call on and we quote, but I don't know that we truly feel the fullness of this scripture. In, in, the, in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, the priest could go in one time a year and he would represent the people before God. And then when he came out of the temple, he would represent God before the people. His job was to do just that. And so here Jesus is the great high priest. 
What is he doing? How is he representing us before God? We see this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I need you to get your fattest marker you got, and I need you to circle that up. You need to know that. You need to know that. Sometimes that's just a cute saying. He knows what you're going through. He knows more than that. He knows way more than that. But one who in every respect, some translations say in in all points, in all ways, in all categorical sin, he has been tempted as we are. I had someone say one time, Pastor Scott, has he been tempted to be a pedophile? Was Jesus struggling with that? Can I tell you that Jesus was struggling with pedophile? He was tempted in that way. He was tempted to be an adulterer. He was tempted to lie. He was tempted to be a murderer. He was tempted. He was tempted in every single way. I know your mind thinks, now how was he tempted in those ways? Because there's only three types of things in the world that's trying to consume us. That's the lust of the flesh, right? Lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Everything you struggle with will fall into those three categories. And Jesus dealt with that in ways you'll never possibly understand. Here's what I know when I read this text. When I read Hebrews chapter 4, I realize this. First off, I know for myself, everywhere my head goes, my body goes too. It's the last time I checked. Now, there's been some times in my life where my body has went and my head's not been there. But most of the time where my head goes, my body is there. Second thing I know is this, I've never experienced pain in my body that my head was not aware of. Never. In fact, the only reason why my body knew it was pain was because my head was grieving it. My, my head told me that was something wrong there. Let me just add, I think if we were more connected to the head, we would know what hurts and what heals. The third thing is simply this. I've never experienced temptation in my body that my head was unaware of. But wouldn't it be great if my stomach was tempted and my brain was clueless? But I'm living proof today that that is not the truth. Jesus, as our high priest, understands weakness as as the body that we face in ways so far above. Matter of fact, when when it says this, this was important. The writer of Hebrews, he stated this because during that time, during the writing of Hebrews, Greek mythology was still a a big thing. And and the Greek gods uh, practiced or were known for apatheia, the inability to feel anything. And so most people, 